Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11 and chapter 12. We are continuing a study of ser- a series of sermons through the fruit of the Spirit, which Paul gives there in Galatians chapter 5. You'll see that in your bulletin, Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. He lists the fruit of the Spirit, and this morning we come to the fruit of gentleness. And in order to look at that biblical teaching more deeply, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, and then we'll skip down to chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Then skipping down to chapter 12, verse 15. Actually, let me pick up the reading in verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. Verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles." He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Since all five of my children attended the same Christian school in the suburbs of Philadelphia, they would eventually all take the same classes from the same teachers and get assigned all the same school projects. And one of those assignments that they all were asked to carry out eventually was a very familiar science project. I'm sure many of you or your children did something similar. The idea was it was a science kind of physics experiment And the idea was that they were to take common household items and use them to construct a container that would hold an egg. But not just to hold an egg, but to keep an egg safe from breaking when it was thrown off the roof of the school building. And so I was always impressed by the creativity and the ingenuity of my children as they used springs and, and rubber bands and cotton and tissues to create these containers to keep these precious eggs safe so they wouldn't break. I've sometimes thought of that activity, that assignment, and thought, you know what, it might be good to include that in church leadership training, to ask our potential church leaders to go to great extents like that to learn how to keep something very precious and fragile from getting broken. It would be good for discipleship training in general, I think, in the church, to teach us a lesson about gentleness. Gentleness is a very important fruit of the Spirit. It's one that we don't talk about very often. We talk about joy, patience, kindness, 
But we don't often talk about gentleness, and I think that's partly because we have some confusion about what, biblically speaking, gentleness really is. In Galatians 5, as we saw, Paul lists gentleness as one of the fruit of the Spirit, which means, as we've been saying all along, that means that gentleness, there's something supernatural about the gentleness of Christians, something that unbelievers can't know about or possess because it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's an evidence of being born again. Well, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul charges all of us. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And so he says, if you're born again, you must have this fruit of the spirit of gentleness and use that gentleness to go out and minister to those who are caught or trapped in sin and its consequences. As we saw, gentleness is a qualification for leadership in the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul lists that as one of the qualifications to look for in elders. And in Titus chapter 2, he gives another list for elders, and he says this, that leaders are to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And again, when you think of Choosing leaders, we just asked you to think about who might serve well as leaders in our own church. Is gentleness a characteristic that you think to look for? Paul says it's a very important qualification. But it's not a quality that we often associate with leaders, is it? I mean, when you think of putting somebody either in a civil political office or a church office, do you think, wow, I, what we really need in that position is a gentle leader? We tend to associate gentleness with weakness, timidity, passivity, just being mild-mannered. When I was in high school, I played basketball, and we had, during the time that I played basketball, I had two different coaches. The first coach I had was kind of the stereotypical Marine Sergeant-type basketball coach, just kind of detached personally, harsh, yelled at us a lot, got angry a lot, motivated us by those means to play better. And then he quit, and the second coach we got for my senior season was the exact opposite. He was what we would have called a player's coach. He was very nice, very friendly, wanted to be the best friend with all the players, but didn't motivate us very well. Both these coaches were bad coaches. We lost a lot. Part of that's because we had no talent. But the other reason was because our coaches were not good coaches, but they were totally opposite from one another. Neither one of them was gentle the way that Paul talks about gentleness. For Paul, gentleness didn't mean being nice or timid or passive. We're talking about what this list of the fruit of the Spirit that's found in Galatians 5. Well, just think about the rest of the letter of Galatians, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. As you think about that letter, chapter 1, Paul says about those false teachers who were preaching a different gospel. He, say, he writes there in chapter 1, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let them be accursed. And by that, he literally means, may they be condemned to eternal punishment in the pits of hell. In Galatians 2, he tells a story about how he confronted the apostle Peter for his hypocrisy 
in not eating with the Gentiles when the Jewish Christians came from Jerusalem. In chapter 3, Paul addresses the befuddled Galatian Christians and he calls them foolish and bewitched. And then in chapter 5, talking about these false teachers who were telling these Christians that they could not be saved if they had not been circumcised, he says in chapter 5, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Is that gentleness? Paul, this is the same Paul who says the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness and that when we see somebody caught in a transgression, we should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Was Paul contradicting himself? Obviously, Paul defined gentleness differently than we do. Certainly differently than our culture defines it. What was Paul's standard for gentleness? How did Paul define gentleness? Two words. Jesus Christ. That was his standard for gentleness. That was his definition of gentleness. And he makes it clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, when he says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He was seeking in his life to emulate the kind of gentleness that our Lord Jesus Christ exhibited in his earthly ministry. And so we come to this verse that we read at the end of Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, where Jesus calls upon all of us, you, me, all of his disciples, and he says, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Well, what do we learn from the example of Jesus Christ about gentleness? Well, think about when he rode into us. We'll stay with the, the gospel of Matthew. In Matthew, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus rides into Jerusalem for his final time. The people are, are in a fervor about him possibly being the Messiah, and he rides into Jerusalem, and you would expect the Messiah, the, the, the way the Jewish people expected in the first century, that he would come on some great war steed with an army behind him, ready to drive out the Romans and establish the kingdom of God on earth. That's what they were hoping for and expecting. But instead, Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And Matthew makes it clear that that was a fulfillment of prophecy, that that's what the prophet Zechariah had said hundreds of years earlier, that when your Messiah comes to you, he is going to come, and the language from the prophecy says, he was going to come humble and mounted on a donkey. The word humble there is literally the same word in the original Greek that we are calling gentleness. Gentle and riding on a donkey. So, he portrayed this characteristic of gentleness in his approach to Jerusalem. But what's the first thing he does once he enters the city? He goes to the temple courts and he turns over all the tables of the money changers and drives them out by force. There's Jesus being gentle as well. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus gives a long public indictment of the religious leaders of the Jewish people of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees, and he calls them hypocrites, blind guides, fools, whitewashed tombs, a brood of vipers, and murderers. This is our gentle Savior. But then he goes out of the city and weeps over it because of the rejection of his people over the generations. He weeps and again shows his gentleness. 
So what Jesus, by his example, is teaching us is that gentleness is obviously a very complex and nuanced characteristic. And sometimes when you're trying to figure out what a biblical adjective means, what it's describing, what is this characteristic, sometimes it's helpful to go to the antonym, not the synonyms in Scripture, but the antonyms. In other words, the words that are, are put in opposition to gentleness. What are some of those words you find in Scripture? Violent, quarrelsome, jealous, impatient, and harsh or severe. That's the opposite of gentleness. And so what both Jesus and Paul teach us by their example, and especially how they use their words, is that you can be both gentle and angry at the same time. You can be both gentle and blunt in your language at the same time. You can be gentle and call a spade a spade at the same time. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says this, and I love the comparison he makes here. He says, talking about his relationship, the way that he dealt with the people in the church in Thessalonica, and listen to how he describes it. He says, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. He's saying, we had authority, and we could have come in and just demanded you do what the right thing to do is. We, should have, we could have dealt with you that way. But, he says, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now, if you've ever been around a nursing mother, you will know that this is not a weak, passive, timid being. There's a reason why women don't shy away from the, the phrase mama bear because they love the analogy that Mama bears, they, they are very tender, tender and delicate with their children, but boy, you mess with their cubs and you're in big trouble. And so there, Paul, I think, is purposely giving us an illustration of strength and gentleness going together in love, love for the one in need. See, gentleness is actually... We call it a fruit of the Spirit, but I would also say it's a fruit of spiritual maturity. Only the most mature believers are able to express this kind of gentleness because what this gentleness is, is strength of character, strength of emotions, strength of, of will, all of that submitted to the will of God for the good of other people. In that sense, it sounds a lot like what we used, we've said meekness is, isn't it? And what's interesting is, in the Greek language, the same word for meekness is often the same word that's translated gentleness. They often use the same Greek word, and we translate some cases meekness and gentleness. There's a lot of overlap between the meaning of the two. And that's where the overlap is. Both of them are strength that is submitted to the will of God for the glory of God and for the good of other people. And that's what gentleness is. We have, uh, our oldest daughter has three young children now. Her oldest son is four. His name's Lincoln. And his younger sister is two. Her name is Nora. And she just had a baby a couple months ago named Claire. And what's been fascinating for me, and I'd forgotten how children are at that stage, that young age of life, it's been a while. And, but I've been watching my grandchildren. 
watching Lincoln, the four-year-old, and Nora, the two-year-old, learn how to treat baby Claire. Because they start by wanting to treat her like a toy, like a baby doll, like a toy. And they quickly have to learn, the parents have to be right on that, to teach them that, no, you can't treat them like a toy. But they also need to go far beyond that and begin to treat baby Claire according to where she is in life, where she is in development. She's very weak and dependent. She can be hurt very easily. And it's such a great lesson for toddlers to learn that they have to be very sensitive to the needs of their baby sister because that's the first lesson in life is that's what Christ is calling us to in every case, to try to discern where is somebody, what is their need, and give them to their need as we are able. That's gentleness. It's strength under control, under submission to God's will for the good of others. Three things that we learn from this, these two short passages in Matthew 11 and 12 about Christ's gentleness. The first one is, is where does this gentleness come from? Because you can't just conjure up gentleness. It's not something that's natural to you. Where does this gentleness come from? It doesn't come from the, the effort of your will trying harder to be gentle. Where does it come from? And it, of course, as with every one of these fruit of the Spirit, we've seen it over and over again, that these fruit of the Spirit come from a deep awareness of the gospel. And so gentleness comes, Jesus teaches us at the end of chapter 11, gentleness comes from resting in Christ, learning how to rest in Christ as a lifestyle. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now we tend, and this is probably one of the most common, uh, commonly quoted verses from the sayings of Jesus. You've heard it many times. And we tend to associate it with people who are suffering trials in life, going through some kind of physical suffering or some great trials in life, or applying it to somebody who's going through just under the, the weight of guilt and shame of their own sin. And certainly it does apply to those people fully. But I don't think that that's primarily who Jesus had in mind, at least initially when he gave those words. Because when you look at the context, the people who are weighed down and burdened and weary under those heavy burdens, the people in context are the Jewish people who had been led astray by the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, who had weighed them down with a works-based religion and hundreds and hundreds of man-made rules piled on top of God's law. And we get, see examples of it even in the passages that, be, uh, that are between the two passages we read earlier. If you look at the beginning of chapter 12, it first tells the story about the Pharisees condemning Jesus' disciples for quote-unquote harvesting grain on the Sabbath. All that they were doing were grabbing some heads of grain and rubbing it in their hands so they could have a snack as they traveled. And the Pharisees condemned Jesus and his disciples for harvesting on the Sabbath. And Jesus rebukes them for that. And then the next story in verses 9 through 14, you have the Pharisees condemning Jesus because he had the audacity to, hire, to, to heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath as well. And Jesus condemned them. And then we saw in verse 14 how these scribes and Pharisees responded to Jesus as they sought to put him to death. You know, it, this, this yoke, Jesus uses the word yoke, this yoke of legalism 
is the essence of false religion. In Matthew 23, verse 4, just to confirm our, our interpretation, Jesus uses this language, speaking of the legalism that the Pharisees put upon the people. It says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. When Jesus used the word yoke, of course, our minds go to literal yokes that you would put over an ox or an oxen, a set of oxen when they would be pulling a great burden and plowing a field. Or sometimes people wore yokes on their shoulders so that they could carry heavy burdens. The yoke in the Jewish mindset was just a set of obligations that are placed upon you. They could be, your yoke could be a set of obligations that your parents put upon you or your boss puts upon you or God puts upon you. The law of God itself is a yoke in a sense. But the Pharisees had misused the yoke and the Pharisees had basically said that Keeping the law is the means by which you please God. The keeping the law is the means by which you are made right with God. And the God that the Pharisees served was not the God of the Old Testament, was not the God of the Scriptures. The God that the Pharisees were serving is the God we would call the God of the scales. In other words, that God has this great big scale in heaven and that your good deeds have to outweigh your bad deeds. And that at the end of your life, hopefully when you stand before God as your judge, that the good things you've done have somehow outweighed the sins that you've committed. And the yoke that the Pharisees were teaching, the yoke that the Pharisees were putting on the shoulders of the people would do one of two things. It would either, if people seriously understood that yoke, it would put them into a state of despair because we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us can outweigh our sins with good deeds. Or if it didn't lead to despair, it led to pride. And that was the sin of the Pharisees themselves because they would so redefine God's law and qualify it by man's rules that they came up with a system where they felt they could keep God's law and therefore they looked down their nose in pride and arrogance against everybody else because they weren't able to keep the law as well as they were. And so... Pride, the pride of the Pharisees that was characteristic of the yoke of the Pharisees, that that pride is inherently jealous, it's inherently competitive with other people, and it's inherently judgmental. And you know what flows out of a, a jealous, competitive, and judgmental heart, that dark heart? You know what that produces? Harshness, quarrels, violence. All these characteristics that we said are the opposite of gentleness. And that was a description of the Pharisees. But Jesus says in verses 29 and 30 of chapter 11, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now what he's affirming there is that there are a set of obligations and responsibilities and expectations that are placed upon a disciple of Jesus Christ. We are to keep the law of God. We are to obey God's word. That is true. But why is that yoke light? It's not just because we can do away with a lot of the man-made rules and traditions of the Pharisees. It's because of our relationship with the law. Our relationship with the law because of what Christ has done for us makes it light. Let me explain. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He did not come to take the law away from us as an obligation, but he came to obey it perfectly, which he did in thought, word, and deed. He kept the law. 
And then being the only perfect person on earth as ever lived, he took our place on the cross as God the Father poured out his wrath and condemnation, the hell that we deserve, God poured it out upon him on the cross and he paid it in full. And then he was raised from the dead and the promise of the risen Christ is if you trust in him as your Lord and Savior, his blood shed on the cross will make you clean and take away all of your offenses, all of your sins. And beyond that, he will give you the gift of his perfect righteousness so that God will accept you because of what Christ has done for you and you receive that by faith alone. And so Jesus says, take my yoke upon you for my yoke is easy and light. Not just because Christ has fulfilled the law for us and our peace with God is based upon what he has done, not what we, what we will do. But even beyond that, now that he has made us clean, now that he has made us righteous in his sight, he gives us his Holy Spirit to dwell with us, to come under the yoke of the law with us, to enable us to be more and more transformed by God so that we keep the law of God. And it's our relationship with the law that is easy now because now we don't keep the law in order to have peace with God. We don't keep the law in order to be right with God. We keep the law because we love God and we're so thankful for what Christ has done for us. That's easy obedience, that we are learning more and more day by day as we follow Christ. Third, the second thing that Jesus teaches us here about gentleness is that gentleness, having been based in that understanding of the gospel, then seeks to serve humbly and quietly. And what do I mean by quietly? Well, I think that's what this prophecy that Matthew quotes in the middle of chapter 12 is about. In, chapter, in verse 14, we saw that the Pharisees were trying to put Jesus to death. The question is, how would Jesus respond to this attack, this threat upon his life. Verse 15 says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. He went away. He avoided the conflict with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And he went somewhere else and he, he continued to heal people, but he told people, do not tell people who I am and what I've done. Keep it a secret. In other words, he continued a quiet ministry. He refused conflict with the, to enter into conflict with the religious leaders and he kept his miraculous acts quiet because of his mission, why he came. And that's why Matthew quotes Isaiah 42 here in the middle of Matthew 12. In verse 19, in the prophecy that Isaiah gave in chapter 42, in verse 19, he quotes it as saying, he, the Messiah, the great Messiah when he comes, will not quarrel or cry aloud, no, will, no one will hear his voice in the streets. You see, Jesus wasn't running away and hiding in fear for his life. He was focused on fulfilling his mission. And in order to fulfill his mission, he needed to do so quietly and humbly. Because Jesus did not come for the throne of Jerusalem. Jesus did not come for the throne of the emperor in Rome Jesus did not come to be the king of the earth in his first coming in the sense that the world considers power and authority. He did not come for earthly power and authority. He did not come to defeat his enemies and to bring them under eternal judgment the first time, that time. That will come later. He came to save his people. 
That was his mission. And that mission inherently had to be a quiet and gentle mission. It's described in another prophecy from Isaiah over in chapter 61, where it says that the Messiah would come to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. He came to minister to those who are brokenhearted, broken and contrite in the sight of God, seeking the hope that the gospel provides. That's why Jesus came. And that's the continuation of our ministry. And this is something that the church of Jesus Christ needs to hear now more than ever, because we've lost sight of this. That the nature of our ministry is that same humble and gentle nature that the ministry of Christ exhibited. We are here to save those who are broken and acknowledge their need of grace. That is who we are here to save. We are not to be concerned with earthly victories. We are not to be concerned with earthly power. We are not to be concerned with earthly fame. And the degree to which the church has lost sight of that and has sought earthly fame and earthly power, it has lost its sense of mission. We are to proclaim the gospel with humility, with gentleness, with compassion and grace, not with arrogance and judgmentalism and disrespect. Remember what Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, very simple instruction about how to share the gospel in your life. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So, Resting in Christ, in his finished work, resting in the gospel of Jesus Christ is to motivate us to gentleness, empower us to gentleness, and that is to produce in us a gentle ministry which is humble and quiet in terms of the standards of this world, which leads us to the focus of our ministry, that gentleness means going out and caring for those who are weak and needy in the eyes of God. In verse 20, this prophecy that, I, that Matthew quotes from Isaiah 42 says this. It says, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. What a vivid picture of the kind of ministry that our Lord exhibited that we are to emulate. A broken reed, reeds were very important in that agricultural culture. That they, the, A broken reed, they were used for a lot of different things, but a lot of them would be useless if they got bent or broken. And a broken reed, probably the, the visual picture that these Jewish people would have would be this reed that was broken. And you know how fibrous reeds tend to be, and they'd be hanging maybe by a couple of fibers together, about to come apart. And it says, he will, it's been bruised, it's been bent, it's been broken, but I will keep it. I will restore it. And then the smoldering wick, you know, they, they, they used lamps to light their homes. And you know what it's like sometimes to light a lamp what it is to light a campfire. Sometimes you'll, 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 you'll strike a match, and to get the match, if you're outside trying to get a campfire lighted, you'll, you'll try to shield it because the slightest breeze will blow that match out and you can't get the, the campfire started. That's the picture that Isaiah and Matthew are giving here of the ministry of Christ. That's the gentleness of Christ with those that are weak and needy before him and are willing to acknowledge that need. 
These are pictures of those who are broken by the consequences of their sin, who are weighed down by guilt and shame, and who are left in despair by the demands of legalism. Those who are desperate to hear good news about Jesus. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are the people that are prepared by the Holy Spirit to hear the good news of what Christ has done for them. And what Jesus and Paul both teach us is that they are both stern towards false teachers and enemies of the gospel and enemies of the kingdom, but they were kind and gentle and compassionate to those who were truly poor in spirit. Remember the father of the demon-possessed boy when, when Jesus asked him, do you believe that I can heal your son? And he said, I believe, help my unbelief. If your faith is weak this morning, that's the kind of needy, humble, gentle call for Christ to work in your life that he always responds to. He will not squelch or quench a smoldering wick. He will stoke it patiently, lovingly into flame. A gentle ministry focuses upon those who are poor in spirit, acknowledging their need in Christ. A gentle ministry is about repairing, about restoring, and about reviving. And that's the ministry of the church. That's your ministry as a disciple of Christ. It's a ministry that before it goes out and deals with the sinners out there in the world, recognizes the log in your own eye so that you can address the speck in somebody else's eye. It's the attitude where you say, when you look at the sins and the mistakes and the slavery to sin that you experience out there in the world, you're able to look at it and say, I was once there. I was once in that place. And there, but for the grace of God, go I now. In that humility, you reach out to the broken, not in judgmentalism or pride. And let me just quickly apply it to words. Owen mentioned this earlier, that this gentleness is primarily seen in how you speak to others. James said that the tongue is a fire, a restless evil full of deadly poison. It's a powerful weapon. But the, the gentleness of, of a disciple of Christ knows how to bring the strength of your tongue under control, under submission to the will of God for the good of others. And that's what Paul describes in Ephesians 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Is that how you talk to and about other people? So that it builds them up, not tear them down? So that it gives grace? We are called to gentleness. It is inherent in being a disciple of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That's the one thing I want you to take home today. You are called to exhibit this kind of Christ-like gentleness in your life. And that applies to you if you're a little old lady or a linebacker for the Pittsburgh Steelers, it doesn't matter. You are to be gentle as a disciple of Jesus Christ. It begins with resting in the good news of Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. It shows itself in humble, quiet ministry by this world's standards and focusing upon the needs of those who are broken and by the grace of God 
are open to hear the good news that we have to offer. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for believing the lies of this world which try to tell us that in order to be successful, in order to have an impact, in order to change the world, we need to be powerful in the eyes of the world. We need to be harsh. We need to be vengeful. We need to glorify ourselves and our cause at the cost of the kingdom of God. Lord, I pray that we as individuals would more and more reflect the humility and the gentleness and the meekness of Christ, realizing that that is not weakness in the face of error and sin, but it is strength in submission to your will. Lord, teach us to treat others as you have treated us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.